which market are you going to be in? You know, we already talked about the 400 plus markets in the United States. So which of those metropolitan areas make the most sense? That's going to be driven by price, supply, demand, uh, affordability. Essentially, those are the macroeconomic factors. The two most important are jobs and population growth. on average read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high-achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep, deep knowledge, and just by listening to this podcast, you are working toward your goals every single day. If you are ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better every day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at MentorBox.com today. There, we'll be uploading a course from Marco Santarelli. Marco is the president and founder of Narada Real Estate Investments. Narada specializes in turnkey cash flow investment properties. In other words, they offer investors property that is vetted to provide stable and sustainable passive income. In this talk, Marco explains the two biggest flaws in common knowledge around real estate investment that pervade America today. One, it's not all about flipping, as a number of TV shows might have you think. And two, there really isn't a national real estate market. Rather, it takes time, education, and research to enter smaller, specific, lucrative markets, but doing so correctly can land you long-term financial success. This is a great course for anyone seeking to learn more about real estate investment. Enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to the MentorBox podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, content coordinator per usual, and today I'm speaking with Marco Santarelli. Marco, it's wonderful to have you talking with us. Thank you so much for joining my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm so excited to have this talk in particular because it's about a topic that I know is deeply important, yet it's one that I am a bit of a layman myself on. Uh, we're talking about real estate investment. And you you and I at least have one thing in common, which is we are deep believers in the power of education. And of course, MentorBox is very dedicated to educating folks in any realm that they want related in particular to investment. You know, we do, we have had some uh, real estate folks on before, uh, one or two on our video platform. I don't think we've done a podcast. And of course, we've done a lot with, you know, just classic stocks, all sorts of financial, personal financial um, growth, sustainability and financial success. And this is one of the topics, real estate investment, that is most popular, in particular, on our Facebook mastermind. And the question that we seem to get most often is, how do I start? Where do I start? And if you don't mind, I'd like to toss that question in your direction. Um, and if you want, you can you know, even give us your own personal story as how you got started. But I guess the ultimate question is, how do I start? How do I get into real estate investment? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a very broad question because a lot of people today, fortunately or unfortunately, think about real estate investing as flipping. And that's really not investing in, in my books. 
you know, HGTV and A&E, I think, have done many of us a disservice. I was going to say, I've, I've seen all those shows. My parents love them. And it, it seems like that has become a, like a normative expectation of what the process of real estate investment is. Right. Because when you're flipping properties, you're, you're making chunks of cash. If everything goes well, it's a very complicated way to make money with real estate. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of risk. You're, you're sticking your neck out. Things can go wrong. You can go over budget. It happens often. And I have flipped a lot of property. I, it's not my favorite thing to do. I actually don't like doing it because it's very complicated. But, but the, the point I'm trying to make is that when you're flipping property, assuming everything goes well and you know what you're doing, you have the right team, you can make you know some nice profit. But these are capital gains. They're chunks of cash. You're buying something, creating value, flipping it, and you're creating a chunk of cash. And then the question is, you know, what do you do with that cash? You could spend it, go on vacation, you could reinvest it, you could flip another property, but it's basically a chunk of cash. It's not cash flow. So you're basically getting in, getting out, getting paid. But real estate investing to me is when you are buying a property or a bunch of properties and creating a portfolio and you're holding them and it's creating cash flow. So every month you have income coming in from the the, the rent that the tenants are paying you. And so now you have cash flow, you have income, it's passive income. And you know, the idea there is as an investor, you're building that portfolio to create that passive income. So now you have ultimately at some point financial freedom because the income from your rental portfolio exceeds your monthly expenses. And now you have the freedom and flexibility to do what you want when you want on your terms. And that's, that's, that's investing to me. And that's what we obviously, you know, talk to people about all the time, you know, through our company. So to answer your question, how do you get started? It really comes back to you as an individual and what you want to be doing. If you want to be an active real estate investor where you want to be managing a group of people, uh, maybe being the general contractor or doing the work yourself and swinging that hammer, that's great. You know, that's going to take, uh, you know, a level of expertise, time, commitment. There's a learning curve and there's a, a level of risk, but that's the active approach. I've done a lot of that. It's not my favorite. What my favorite is, is the passive approach, the being a passive real estate investor. And that can be at different levels. You could, you know, you could invest in securities like equities, like in a REIT, a real estate investment trust, which is on the stock market. You know, that is a very, very passive approach, but that is not necessarily the best. In fact, it is not the best way to go about it. The best way to invest as a passive real estate investor is to actually be the owner of those properties. In other words, you're the one acquiring them and you're the one getting 100% of the benefits and you are essentially the CEO of your own real estate investing empire. And so you'll build that portfolio of, you know, two, three, five, 10, 50, 100 properties or 100 doors and you get all the all the benefits of it from it, you get all the income and and to me, that's investing because you're investing for cash flow, passive income. So I don't want to harp on HGTV too much or make this like, you know, a television re review. But what I've seen on those shows seems to be a neglect for the more analytical end of real estate investment. I know that's something that you have, um, you know, claimed that you are. You're an analytical person, um, you know, as is Alex Mayer, as what I say I am. And what I see on HGTV shows that involve flipping houses is, hi, this is my husband and I. We are these jobs. Uh, we decided to pick this place because 
you know, it's close to a school. It has a nice backyard. We think we can flip it because of this. And all that to me, it, it's very uh, superficial. It's very surface level. It almost seems like the producers feel obligated to give you like a quick um, reminder that like, hey, this takes a little bit of analysis. You don't just buy a place and, and flip it. You have to think about it. You have to take some care. But then most of it is focused on how, what they do to the kitchen and the bathroom and, and how they make it all pretty on the inside. And this is, you know, very clearly uh, sort of a, a local market situation because these folks are almost always from the place that they're going to be flipping, that sort of thing. And it seems like analytically, that's probably not as difficult. And, and the sense that I get from what we've already talked about is that uh, you in particular and Norada Real, Real Estate Investments, you guys are focusing on a much a much larger scale of things. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So, you, you know, you, you need to understand and, you know, all your listeners need to understand that the United States is not made is is not one one real estate market. There's no such thing as a national real estate market. And this thing kind of drives me a little bananas because when you listen to the news and the mainstream media, they they talk about the real estate market doing this or the real estate market doing that, that it's, you know, it's appreciating, it's depreciating, it's it's you know, it's doing whatever it's doing. But the problem is is there is no such thing as a national real estate market. You can't show it to me. You can't point your finger at it. It doesn't exist. The United States is made up of over 400 metropolitan statistical areas. So every market is different. They're all local. Real estate is a local and a hyper-local thing. So what happens in one market like San Francisco is different than what's happening in a city like, let's say, Detroit, which is different than what's happening in a city like Waco, Texas. So you have to understand that real estate markets have their own local economies, their own supply, their own de demand, and their own affordability, among other things. And so you really can't talk about real estate at a national level. It's very hard. And even when you talk about, let's say, Case-Shiller, you know, the Case-Shiller Index, well, that's nothing more than a basket of, let's say, the 20 largest metropolitan areas in the country all mixed together and just gives you kind of a, a generalized barometer of what the large markets are doing. But there are markets that will be depreciating when other markets are appreciating if you're focused on price. We're focused on cash flow and return. So, you know, it's not just about price, but I just bring that up to, to show or illustrate the fact that there are markets doing one thing while other markets are doing something different. These shows on TV, they're, the fix and flip shows, they're just focused on one particular market. It's the backyard of, of whoever is the host or the star of the show where they do their acquisitions and renovations. And like I said before, that to me is not investing. That That is creating a business where you're acquiring a distressed asset, fixing it up, creating value, and then flipping it for a chunk of cash, which is essentially capital gains that you'll pay the most tax on. What can, can you just define a distressed asset for our listeners really quickly? I think that's important. Yeah. So a distressed asset is essentially a property that is not in, in new or like new condition. It's, it's, it's got problems. It needs repair. Sometimes it's, uh, it's a lot of repair, like a lot of capital expenditures need to go into it in order to bring it into, you know, a, a, a marketable or, or functional condition. And, and, and so, you know, that is an opportunity. It's, you know, it, is, it might be a junker. It might be, you know, an ugly duckling on a street. That is an opportunity for someone who wants to pick that property up and spend some time uh, and money fixing it up, increasing its value and selling it for a profit. You know, that's what these flipping shows are about. They're taking something that's 
essentially ugly and making it pretty and uh, and building value into that property. So when they sell it, they make a chunk of cash. So your ultimate point of view is that if somebody wants to be creating wealth, the best way or, you know, creating sustainable financial well-being is the best way to do that is through passive real estate investing. And that involves that more analytical understanding of maybe not the country at large, not like the national market, but an understanding of how to navigate that, that, you know, quote unquote market to understanding, you know, the larger MSAs and maybe what opportunities might exist within some of those. If you want to go it alone, you can be your own analyst and you can try and figure out what markets make the most sense and what sub markets and what neighborhoods, and then, you know, start finding properties that are prospective candidates as an investment property and then do your analysis on that property. And I'm not trying to make it sound complicated, but at the same time, I am trying to make it sound complicated because it, it is a methodical process. It's, 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 it's a logical decision-making process. If you want to do it on your own, you're doing it the hard way. Uh, real estate investing is a team sport. You need a team of competent advisors around you real estate agent, your lender, your CPA, your attorney, your property management company, a title company, um, your home inspector. These are, these are the people that you want on your team. And you can find these people through referrals or you can find them online. You could do your, you know, your research to, to assemble this team and get them through referrals or whatever the case may be. A lot of people do it that way. Um, then, you know, not, not, not to sound like a plug, but you have a completely turnkey service or solution like what we offer and what we've been doing for almost 15 years, where we have all those pieces put together. And the idea is to really do 70 to 80% of the work for you, you know, that real estate investor, regardless of whether it's your first property or your 50th. And, and we have all of that put together, including the properties, the actual properties you can invest in. Back to your question, though, you know, I'll, I'll say this, and this this will kind of paint the picture uh, and help help people understand how that process works. I have these ten rules of successful real estate investing, which I know we're going to get into. In yeah, a I, re- I read that blog post actually, and yeah, I'm hoping that we can <laughs> dive deeper into it in video format and discuss what we can here too. Yeah, so I, I think the last time we spoke, we were planning on creating a video uh, on Mentor Box for for the ten rules. But the sixth rule is essentially this: um, my sixth rule is take a top-down approach. So imagine a funnel. Visualize a funnel. You start at the top, and that's the biggest part of that funnel. And really, that is a matter of which market are you going to be in. You know, we already talked about the 400 plus markets in the United States. So which of those metropolitan areas make the most sense? That's going to be driven by price, supply, demand, uh, affordability. Essentially, you know, those are the macroeconomic factors. The two most important are jobs and population growth. Because if you have jobs and you have job growth in a market, you have demand. You have strong demand and a buying pool and a rental pool, which is what you want as a real estate investor. Uh, on top of that, it's good to have positive migration. Usually, if you have jobs and job growth, you're naturally going to have people moving into the area more so than the people moving out. And so that creates an increased population base and 
that means you have more demand. So if you have more demand, therefore you need more houses for people to buy and you need more houses for people to rent. So those are the high level things and that's the top of the funnel. As you move down the funnel, you start breaking a metropolitan area up into its sub markets and then ultimately the types of neighborhoods or uh, you know, well specifically neighborhoods, but then again, the types of neighborhoods that you wanna be in as a real estate investor. Then, the next layer down is the property itself. You know, a lot of investors make the mistake knowingly or unknowingly to be presented a, an investment opportunity, i.e. the property. And it looks good. It, you know, the photos look good. The, the numbers on paper look good. Um, but, but really that's being myopic. You're looking at the property and not considering the neighborhood or the, you know, the bigger market that it's in. So for me, it's all a top-down approach. You start with the market, you work your way down to, you know, the sub-market, the neighborhood, and then the property. And then if everything checks out at that point, now you're, you're back to your team. Do you have the right property management company to properly qualify and screen your tenants, place them and manage them. That's probably one of your most important team players. You know, when we talk about a team is your property manager. And, and so that's the top-down approach. And so, you know, that's a big answer to your question. But, you know, to summarize, there's no such thing as a national housing market. Every market is local and hyper-local. And you need to analyze and make your decisions based on the market, the economics, the type of neighborhood you're in, the type of property and the condition of that property. And then, of course, you know, the, uh, the management and the rest of your team players. Hey. I hate to interrupt this conversation with Marco Santarelli, but I want to let you know where you can learn more about real estate investment. We're recording a full series of videos with Marco on Narada Real Estate Investment, and we also have a number of other real estate experts on our platform, including the Canlis Brothers from San Francisco. If you want access to these and much, much more, you'll have to become a member, so sign up today at mentorbox.com. Okay, back to the show. If you're taking that top-down approach, when you get to that point of deciding upon your team, how do different factors play in, like your own proximity? I mean, we've talked a little bit about, you know, out-of-state real estate and thinking about markets all across the country. How can you decide upon all those different roles and how do you do the appropriate research necessary to making sure that you're picking out those right team members across the board? So are you asking me specifically about the team, the people themselves? or the market? I guess the team in this case. Okay. So, so we've talked about who you want on your team. You want, you know, you need, you need a source for, for prospective properties, you know, these investment opportunities. And so often you're going to get that from a real estate broker or real estate agent there. And I will be honest with you, they are usually not the best source. The reality is Unfortunately, that the majority of real estate agents, and this is not a dig on real estate agents, you know, I, I, I've been licensed for the longest time and I know a lot of real estate agents. And it's funny that we have a lot of clients who are real estate agents. They just are not schooled in understanding investing and real estate investing. Uh, it's, it, it even blows my mind how many of them don't even know what a cap rate is, a capitalization rate, which is a very basic metric on the rate of return of a property as if you bought it all cash. So, you know, if you don't even understand that, there's how could you possibly compare 
one property to another or you know a, a the return on one property to another asset class such as you know stocks bonds mutual funds uh, a note or whatever it may be so you need you need your acquisitions team and so again that could be a real estate agent or a real estate broker it could be a local wholesaler someone who finds distressed properties if that's what you want to do and then sells them to you at a discount it could be a turnkey real estate company like ours that already has these assets ready to go and ready for, for purchase. Uh, but you need a source. So that's one member on your team. Sometimes they come from referral, but it's amazing how many people don't actually know that these people exist or where to turn. Believe it or not, a lot of people go to the internet. I mean, everybody goes to the internet today to find something, you know, an answer to a question or, or a source for products and services. You know, uh, one of the big websites out there is Zillow. You know, it's yeah, yeah. I I, I like it and hate it at the same time because <laughs> it it is it is a good resource for some, you know, basic market and neighborhood information. Um, but it, it it's it's kind of the catch all be all to everybody in terms of list trying to list every single property in the country, whether it's for sale or not. They just want to have the largest database of properties available. Uh, but the the thing with that is is that the properties that are for sale on the, on Zillow for the most part they're being pulled off of the local MLSs the multiple listing services of you know of of each um, region or, or or city or metro. Um, but that doesn't ultimately help you in in being able to select a prospective property to purchase. Usually the ones that are for sale are tied to a real estate agent. So you're still going to have to go to a real estate agent who probably doesn't understand, you know, investing and what real estate rental properties should be like and how they should perform financially. Most of those properties on that website anyway are are retail sales, meaning that they're meant for homeowners, not for real estate investors. So, you know, unless you have a specialized source, you know, you need to just unfortunately know where to go. And I know I'm kind of being broad and long-winded uh, with my answer to your question, but you know, you got your first member on your team is is the acquisitions. The others are a little easier to find because you can actually do research online when it comes to property management companies. There's a lot of websites and resources that you can turn to in in terms of doing due diligence on your property manager. Um, CPAs and attorneys often come by referral. Uh, we know a lot of them, we interview a lot of them, um, but you can find them online. Like you could literally go to a specific market and type in real estate attorney and do research on all the real estate attorneys in that area. Um, and the same thing with asset protection. Um, what else is there? Uh, property home. managers you said was one of the more important ones. Yeah, you could, you could definitely find a lot of property managers just doing a, a search on a search engine in a particular market to find a, a whole list of management companies. The key there is that you want to make sure that they have a, um, certainly over 100, but a lot of properties under management, that they have a, a team on staff. It's not just a one-man show or one-woman show or – it's um, you know a real estate agent that does real estate sales part time and property management part time. You want a completely full service professional management company. You can ask for references. You can uh, look them up on the um, forgot what the association is called, the National Association of Property Managers. Make sure that you know they are a member of of that organization. Okay. So it's you know it's a matter of doing research 
typing on a keyboard, maybe making some phone calls to try and assemble that team. This is if you want to, you know, DIY, do it yourself. You know, again, there, there are companies like ours that help to shortcut all of that and, and make it much, much easier for you to get started and, and just have the right people who have already been vetted. And, you know, that's, that's the key. And you mentioned that, and this could have been just a quick off the cuff assessment, but you said that, you know, those sorts of companies take care of like 70 to 80% of the whole process. What then is the remainder that uh, that individual or that person is still taking care of along the real estate investing process? Well, I said 70 to 80% uh, because I can speak for what we do in our company. I can't, you know, speak for, uh, there's not very many other companies out there that are doing what we're doing. Um, so I, I can't speak for them. I do know that we are very hands-on and consultative. We'll, we'll literally hold, not literally, figuratively hold <laughs> someone by the hand and take them through the entire process. Okay. That, that last 20 to 30% that you're talking about is about um, having essentially a strategy session with us to figure out how we map where you are today to where you wanted to go and, and put together a plan to get there. How many properties and what time frame, what kind of properties and what types of neighborhoods. This is easier to do when someone's actually asking you the questions and pulling that information out. But there's no reason why you can't just sit down and think it through and, and kind of map that out for yourself. You know, what kinds of properties and how many markets, how many of them do I need? What kinds of cash flow or what kind of rate of return am I looking for? So all you're doing is you're defining your plan for building your real estate portfolio to achieve whatever financial goals you have. Yeah. So, so that, it's financial planning in a sense, so like, you know, establishing a portfolio, diversifying it appropriately and that sort of thing. That's the individual's yeah. job to finalize the decisions on at the end of the day. Yeah. So that's, that, that's step one. That's, that's the starting point. And then from there, it's, it's a matter of, um, you know, determining with or without our help. I mean, it could be with, you know, your, your, your family or or your other advisors, but you know, what market are you going to start in? And, and then, you know, drilling down through that funnel that I was describing before. So that, that is part of that 20 to 30% process. Then let's just fa go through the, the whole uh, rest of that formula here. At some point in time, you're going to decide on a market, a neighborhood, you're going to look through some properties, you're going to shortlist those properties, you're going to pick one, maybe two to put under contract. Once those are under contract, you know, your due diligence will continue. And that means that you will order a home inspection from a professional third party home inspector to basically check that property from top to bottom. You want to make sure there's no deferred maintenance items, that there's no major issues that they're, you know, you want the mechanicals checked. You basically want to know exactly what you're buying and if there's any issues and if there's any work that needs to be done. So you have the home inspection and then if there's repairs that need to be done, you know, you have those addressed. And, you know, if, if, if you're buying it off the MLS, um, you know, if it's just some seller, uh, there may be a number of issues that need to be addressed and that's just a matter of negotiation and, and discussion. So there could be a lot of hidden costs at the start, not necessarily hidden if you really know what you're getting into. But for those that are just, you know, starting in real estate, there's a lot of different things to think about, including, you know, not only the cost of fixing a place up, but discovering what needs to be fixed up in the first place. Right. Unless you're buying, again, you know, what, what we're calling a turnkey rental property, which is 
you know, just a buzzword. It's not an industry definition. But a turnkey rental property is essentially one that is new or like new because all the refurbishment or the renovation work has been done. And so the mechanicals are replaced. You know, the roof is in, you know, is either replaced or, you know, has a long life, like 10 plus years. There's really nothing you need to do to a a a turnkey rental property, something that is beyond rent ready. It's something that is, you know, uh, leasable and and ready to go today with no maintenance issues whatsoever. So the inspection, repairs if needed, um, those those are really the main due diligence pieces. Because at this point in time, by the time you go to contract, you've already done your analysis on the cash flow. You've looked at the numbers. Uh, you've looked at the, the pro forma for future years. You know what the financial performance and cash flow from that property will be. So that piece of it is done um, prior to going to contract. We hold your hand and walk you through that if you are working with us. However, if you're doing it on your own, this is not rocket science, by the way. This is just math. You know, you've got income. You factor in vacancy. You've got expenses. You deduct those. What's left over is called net operating income. That's your that's your income or your cash flow from the property, assuming that you have no debt service. If you finance it with a mortgage, then you subtract that debt service and what's left over is your net cash flow. That's the money that's spendable, goes in your pocket, goes in your bank account, wherever it may be. So again, um, an important piece, but nothing too complicated. That's part of your due diligence. Once you've gotten past the inspection phase, you're at this point in tandem, you're working with your loan officer or your mortgage broker or whoever your lender is. So you're working on your financing. And then once your financing is in place, in other words, 30 to 45 days later, when you have, you know, you're clear to close and you can fund, um, at that point, the property is purchased, title goes into your name or your, you know, your LLC's name, whatever you're, wherever you're holding title. And, um, and now the purchase, the due diligence is done and the purchase process is over. Okay. So let's then take a quick dive into some markets. I read on the blog uh, a couple that you published, I think, pretty recently. Um, You talked about Dallas, you talked about Cleveland, uh, and there's a few more as I scrolled down as well. Some of the basic principles that you talked about already, um, I think, and of course, in those, the top 10 principles that you need to know, um, just like, you know, steady population growth, uh, job availability, those sorts of things. Uh, obviously factored into that decision. But what made you choose those markets to include on your blog? I want to dig in a bit deeper and and see what else is important about, let's say, Dallas as a market that seems to be good for real estate right now. Okay, so we're currently in about 18 markets. They, They change a little bit from year to year just because markets change, but they change slowly. So it's not like, um, you know, like the stock market where it's, it's, it can be very volatile and things change overnight. The markets we choose um, have certain things in common. They have uh, stability. Uh, they have jobs, ideally job growth. They have population growth. There is um, a, an abundance in terms of supply of housing. So we have inventory in those markets. Okay. There is, this is getting a little bit more complicated, but the the ratio of rent to price is in line. So that way we know that those properties will cash flow. Even if you have maximum financing, so you put, uh, you know, the minimum 20% down and you finance the rest, you, you know, you'll still have, you'll still have a good rate of return. You'll have a good cash on cash return. So that cash flow is there. Those things need to be in place in order for us to 
operate or move into a market and offer any kind of investment opportunities there. However, there are different types of markets. There are markets that are more prone to cash flow. They don't have a lot of appreciation potential. There are other markets that are more growth oriented. So they'll have, you know, a stronger propensity to grow in terms of price appreciation, but the cash flow will suffer. And then you have something in the middle, which is kind of a cross between those two. And, and we refer to them as hybrid markets. It's kind of the best of both worlds. You have good cash flow and good appreciation potential, but it's not, you know, the scales balance is not tipped in one way or the other. Uh, and so, you know, depending on you, uh, the investor, your, your preference and your, your criteria will determine which of those markets you're going to focus on. So I'll give you an example. Memphis, Tennessee is one of our markets. I know you mentioned Dallas. Mm-hmm. Sure, we can switch it up. Yeah, so Memphis, Tennessee is very much a cash flow market, has been for a long time, still is today. It's pretty much a perennial market. You don't see a lot of price fluctuation or, or, or appreciation gains or, 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 or depreciation losses. So that's a, that's a cash flow market example. Um, on the flip side, on a market like Atlanta lately and even Dallas to a large degree have been more growth oriented. We've seen rapid price appreciation in the last two, three years. And so that's made it harder and harder as an investor to get in and have, um, uh, you know, a, a decent rate of return because prices are appreciating faster than the rents are. And so it's creating a drop in price. Yeah. In, in the terms of, uh, you know, your cash on cash return. So, so Dallas has been a great market for a long, long time. However, the last two, three years, we've seen a, a rapid appreciation gain in that market. So it's been making it tougher to invest in and tougher to get inventory. So Dallas, Memphis, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, another, I'll give you another example. Jacksonville has been and still is a hybrid market. We have good inventory there. You'll, you can find good inventory there. You can find good cash flow there, above average or moderate appreciation rates. And we expect that to continue for another probably three to five years just because of the job growth in that market. So there's strong demand for housing and that will continue for a while. So, you know, markets are different. Like I said before, all real estate is local and, and it'll change depending on what market you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you one more question to kind of wrap up uh, expectations. And again, when one is getting into this, getting into investing, it's important to, you know, be thinking about the long term and and have their sort of portfolio and their financial expectations built out. And I feel like it's it's one of the more difficult times to assess the longevity of a market, perhaps just because of how quickly these things might have an impact, but how quickly innovation and technology and culture and the the country evolves. Um, I think it's probably harder than ever to assess how stable a market will be and how uh, job growth may change. Especially, you know, political discourse and all that seems to have a large impact as well. There's a lot of things that are very volatile these days. Um, but you seem pretty confident that, you know, Jacksonville will remain, you know, it will have job growth for the next three to five years. What goes into that sort of assessment that you make? Um, employment, the employment base. I mean, it's it, you got to look at a um, a market that has diverse and wide uh, industry or sectors. You know, within the industry, um, 
the flip side is what I call a one trick pony market like North Dakota was with the whole oil boom. You know, there was, you know, there was, there was this explosion in jobs that were related to oil and gas. And so it created a massive shortage of housing. And then all the builders rushed in to start building and we saw prices rapidly increase because there was tons of demand and a huge shortage on supply. And then the, then, you know, things flipped around, uh, the price of oil dropped, they capped wells and, um, jobs were, you know, jobs started to disappear. And so now you had all this supply of housing on the market with no demand. And so prices dropped. So they, they ran up like a, you know, a roller coaster going up and then they came crashing down. So when you have an, you know, a, a market that has a very shallow or narrow band of industry or, or, or market sectors, you get this problem. But if you look at a market like Atlanta or Dallas uh, or even Jacksonville, Florida, where you have a very broad base of different types of industry, healthcare, manufacturing, tourism, finance, um, you know, whatever it may be, education, healthcare, uh, you you have more stability, and 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 that helps in terms of growth. You know, so if if those industries are doing well then companies are going to maintain employment and and probably even higher and so that just leads to more you know more people moving into the area plus the people who are living there that need to pay their rent have the income to be able to pay their mortgage or their rent so you know it's it's kind of a very basic concept but at the end of the day you know we pay our our bills including our rent and our mortgage from our jobs so the, you know the income that comes in through our employment and if the employment's there you know, it adds stability to the economy. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really that simple. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I think that's that was a great sort of 101 lesson, even maybe dipping into 201, 301 there a little bit. Um, but I think we can save the rest for when we when we shoot that video series. I think we can dive in a lot deeper and let our viewers and listeners really get into the nitty gritty uh, when that comes around, if you don't mind. I would love um, to. Yeah, before we, before we sign off, um, anything that you want to leave to the listeners, um, the website is naradarealestate.com. Is that correct? Yeah, there's uh, two websites where we have our, all our properties and a bunch of free information and a downloadable guide. That's, yeah, Norada Real Estate, N-O-R-A-D-A, naradarealestate.com. And then if I may, you know, we have a, a sister site called Passive Real Estate Investing, Passive Real Estate Investing, and that's actually the home of our podcast, which of course is the same name, Passive Real Estate Investing. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great conversation. I learned a lot. I'm sure many of our listeners are going to appreciate this hugely. Um, we look forward to having you in our studio eventually. We'll get that taken care of soon and we'll put a video up online. Sound good? Uh, sounds great. I look forward to it, Tyler. Thank you. All right, everybody else, thanks for listening and tuning in. We'll get you on the next episode. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. 
We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.